Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to our latest edition of Deep Dive. This time we are welcoming back the producer Alan Shacklock. Now, if you have not heard our original episode with Alan from about two years ago, go back and listen to it because it's by far one of the most entertaining episodes we've ever had on here. He just does not pull any punches, tells it like it is, no disrespect. Right, Alan? And uh, we loved it. Stories about Meatloaf, The Alarm, Dennis DeYoung, and Roger Daltrey. So we brought Alan back to talk about Roger's 1985 album, Under a Raging Moon. That's the album that featured After the Fire, which is still such a potent, beautiful song, written by Pete Townsend, by the way. Why is Pete writing a song for Roger Daltrey's solo album? That's what we're going to find out. And then the story behind the title track, which is an epic, epic tribute to Keith Moon and features many of the greatest drummers of all time on one song. That song alone deserves its own episode. So we hear about that as well. It's the last song in the album, so it's the last thing we talk about, but it's still worth it. This whole thing is fantastic. Alan's the best. Check it out. I think, if I remember correctly, Meatloaf, which you didn't have that great of an experience with, had something to do with getting Roger uh, open to making this kind of an album. Is that right? Not directly, uh, to to be honest with the answer. This is how the story went, and a true story. So uh, we're going to go into it now. I was actually booked to do a meatloaf record. I think we talked a little bit Mm -hmm. about this in the earlier Mm -hmm. interview, about uh, the ups and downs of that record. We won't do that again. No because we don't want your listeners to get bored here. Because <laughs> they've got so many other things they could do on the internet. Uh-huh. But uh, hopefully, they'll, hopefully they'll stay with us. But just in a nutshell, Meatloaf actually physically called me at home on the old style phones and said, I'd like, I'm in London, I want to make a record, and you are part of the consideration of the producers that we're considering. I love your work with the arm, he had particularly been uh, attached to, for some unknown reason, the, the alarm at that mm-hmm. point were just getting into their heyday. 19, I want to say 84, with Declaration coming out and being pretty much a milestone for them. I don't, you know, I happen to be involved in that record, which I'm very proud of. But Meatloaf had heard that record. Mm-hmm. So Meatloaf had actually heard that record and a few other things that people had played him that and literally there was no record company i thought it was a joke when he first called when he attempted to accent anyway so we met in london we got on the house on fire and uh honestly went straight into that record he was bringing his whole band from stanford connecticut mm. where he his home was at that time and we decided we would do the pre-production in his house, which we did do. Mm-hmm. And we we actually brought in the writers, some of the writers. I think I may have mentioned this before, but there was a fellow called John Parr, mm-hmm. who was the John Parr of St. Elmo's Fire thing. Yeah. And he was a, not just a great singer, but a great writer. And that comes on to... Actually, another story about the Who a bit later about John's manager, and, and we'll get to that. This so we gold. finished the pre-production. We brought we brought the record of Meatloaf to the UK to pretty much camped out at both Marcus Studios in London, very 
good studio, no longer there, sadly, and Abbey Road Studios, which is still there, thankfully. Mm -hmm. So we went kind of between those two studios and created the album Bad Attitude for Meatloaf. Mm -hmm. On that album, coming to what we are speaking about today, is that the song, the title track, Bad Attitude, gave rise to a duet. It was about a father kind of son thing, and it was one of those deals, in actual fact. Meatloaf came to me and said, look, we need to choose another singer for this mm. that can be believably in, in this scenario and, you know, come in. And I said, well, let me look at the list. I said, but really my first thought would be Roger Daltrey. Mm -hmm. uh, Roger Daltrey in Meatloaf went, wow, really? The singer of The Who, would he mm -hmm. do it? And I said, well, let's find out. I was the producer, and of course, as the producer, you do the legwork and you you do the introductions. So I, having opened for The Who <laughs> in mm -hmm. 1974, this is really going to date me, mm -hmm. with my band Babe Ruth, we, we already kind of had a bit of a history then uh, coming up to the 80s, there was a band that I have mentioned in the first interview called the Steve Gibbons Band mm. that were managed by Rogers Management. Steve Gibbons is a great writer, British player, great band, kind of rock and roll reggae. Anyway, so all that to say, I phoned Bill Kirbishley, who was the Who's manager and still is, and he said, well, here's his number, give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be a big coupon, you know, me going to the, you know, trying to be, be, go through the protocol. But uh, I called Roger's house and his wife answered the phone and she said, oh, just a minute, I'll get him. So I talked to Roger, really good conversation. He remembered me from Babe Ruth and remembered we opened nice. for them in London at mm. the Sundown Edmonton. They did four concerts uh, right close to Christmas. It was actually the premiere of Quadrophenia. Mm. So one of my favorite records, definitely. Sure. Anyway, so I had a good conversation with Roger and I said, are you interested in his, well, you know, back in the day before emails and MP3s and streaming, he said, send me a tape. And I sent him a tape of the song. He said, if this was the Friday, and I, uh, he, he said, if I like it, I'll come down Monday. So he came down to <laughs> Abbey Road no record company involved in this, just the management being aware of it. And normally there's big signing on these things and record companies giving permission and all this stuff. Well, we didn't seem to have that problem with it, so we just went ahead. Mm -hmm. They met in the Beatles studio that I call it, Abbey Road Number 2, mm -hmm. which was one of our favorite studios, one of mine for 40 years. Anyway, so... Um, got on like a house on fire they played some table tennis <laughs> we had a table tennis table set up in number two down there and they played some table tennis and they they got to know one another and really got on well uh -huh. roger did his part in about one or two takes as he will uh -huh. and nailed it and we got into conversation after the session just roger and myself and I said, well, don't you make solo records anymore? Because the Who weren't really active at that yeah. point. They, they'd kind of, uh, this was 84, 85. Mm -hmm. 
that period and the who had kind of taken a sabbatical doing other things and he said no he said i don't i don't make solo records he said the last one we spent a fortune and the record company got mad at me (laughs) (laughs) so so that he took i I believe they took the whole band down to the virgin islands or something Mm -hmm. like that and spent a fortune and of course apparently that record didn't do well some of his solo records which i must come to um one of which was called ride a rock horse was Mm -hmm big milestone and that's that was really where we got the idea of russ ballard and we'll come to that as yeah, we get the tracks okay. yeah yeah but uh, sorry i'm i'm talking i'll give you space in a second oh no, that's I'll great finish I love it. Thought, but um, <laughs> uh, and then during that conversation in abbey road i said well listen if you ever want to make any any music i'd love to you know, help you be a part of that, whatever needs, you know, I'm taking a punt basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) for my boyhood hero. I used to go and watch the who when I was 14, you know, so that, and of course they were so great. He literally phoned that weekend and said, let's do it. He said, I want to do a celebration of the who Mm -hmm. and I want the record to reflect that in the lyrics. Hmm. And I said, well, give me the reins to get out and start to commission the writers. Yeah. I said, let's not hit the publishers because if we hit, <laughs> no disrespect here, okay, but right. if we hit the publishers, we're going to get a bunch of, you know, yeah. songs that are four and five, a brilliant Who sound alike. And yeah. we did actually get some of these. We did actually get some of these, <laughs> which were, you know, even one point, one guy even went to the point of using a Helios desk, which the, the Who used to use okay <laughs> so great track but not such a great song uh-huh. anyway because we were looking for content uh and of course you know roger having pete townsend as his pretty much writer throughout his life and his right arm if you like you know was used to that level honestly of songs sure you know um it's got to be one of the highest levels out there still yeah in my book anyway so we were looking to get something that was intrinsic to the idea of i hate to use the word concept album but it Mm. is of a celebration of the who wow so um i started to do the legwork and i said give me you know give me give give me some latitude Mm -hmm. time i'm going to get in touch with the writers that i think would be a fit for this and be sympathetic mm-hmm. to this cause. Some mm-hmm. people who, you know, would be knowing the who and all that stuff. Anyway, so I started to get on the vine, the great vine, as they say, and started to, uh, honestly started to contact people who got excited about this. During this time, the who's management had introduced me, well, I... Before this, I'd been introduced to John Parr on the Meatloaf record. Yeah. So John was one of my first thoughts because I know John was a big Who fan, as we all were of that around of that age. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. and we and I had a relationship already with John from the Meatloaf record. He did a great job, and there was also his co-writer Julia Downs, who had written for Sheena Easton, I believe. She was more more a pop writer but john kind of pulled her across to the the rock and roll thing okay i wondered how she played into this uh, okay yeah yeah we can discuss uh, in depth here also she wrote quite a, 
she wrote two on the record, I believe. Mm -hmm. She did. If I'm not mistaken. So John got very excited, and I said, let's write a song about Keith Moon. Can I just give you that as a brief? Mm. And he said, great. He said, uh, I'll go and go away, and he did his homework. And then he came back, you know, with that title, Under a Raging Moon. Mm. And that was John, really, uh, and Julia that, that got that. And mm -hmm. then uh, he said, I'm going to pretty much write the story of the Who at Woodstock. Ooh, really? Okay. So the Who apparently, uh, apparently went on at Woodstock at 5 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, that's what I read. Um, the story goes that, that nobody wanted to follow Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. Roger actually told me this in conversations because they all knew that Jimi Hendrix was going to just pull it out yeah. to try to follow something like that, even with when you're the Who, <laughs> yeah. is a little intimidating. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So yeah. for, for that thing, you know, and I think everybody was kind of in awe of Hendrix at the time you know it just it, it was a little daunting to follow an act like I that bet. yeah and of course that's when he did the whole guitar on fire mm -hmm. thing and yeah. you know unmatched you know yeah, <laughs> anyway. yeah totally so uh yeah and uh, legendary uh, anyway coming from that great stories about this particular track not to under mine any of the other tracks on the record because yeah. I think they were all good tracks they were all up there you know there's often albums with filler i don't think this had any filler no. yeah you know w without blowing the trumpet too much but yeah um, yeah i we agree got, we got a good good solid record and yeah you and did. It got good reviews anyway so okay so do you want to do, do you, would you yeah. like to do the title track first yes yeah, so we're going to go in order let me give a John, little bit of yeah. background information real quick it was recorded in or it was released in september of 1985 uh, this was his sixth right. solo album. It reached number 42 in the U.S. and I believe number 43 in the U.K. One thing I was curious about was that it was recorded in Rack Studios as well as Odyssey Studios, apparently. Yep. Do you, I'm always yep. curious, when yep. you're there working on this album, who are in the other studios in this in the place? Who else is there while you're there? Well, it was, it, it was interesting that the Pretenders mm. actually were in the other room. This is how... Martin Chambers actually ended up okay. on the record, and and this is how it lit the fire for all the drummers coming on the record. There were seven drummers on the particular track, uh -huh. which I know is a crazy world. <laughs> now it would be reasonably easy on in the internet world, and you know that yeah. exchange. But back in those days, they physically had to show up, or you had to show up. So what happened was. Shall I go into this, John, now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wait for the, let's talk about Under the yeah. Raging Moon at the end, because that's the big finale. But let's, uh, okay. so, yeah, right. let's start okay. then with good. track good. one. After the Fire, it's written by Pete. All right. The fire still burns 
It reaches number 48 right. in the States. This is a this is yeah. a song that I think right. deserved much better. In fact, I feel that way about this whole album. And I told you this last time we talked. I feel like this what this album represents is some of the best rock had to offer at that time, you know? There's a, uh, it's well, a slightly, I, do, I believe oh, that it's you. slightly glossier than maybe than something you'd see, you'd hear in the seventies, but that's what the eighties were about. And you were producing such great stuff that deserved to get more attention. I feel like there was an interesting story no, I read yeah. about Pete. Yes, I guess Paul, uh, Roger was in a restaurant and well, he was talking to somebody saying, I feel like there needs to be one more song here. And right then Pete walks in and says, I've got just the song for you or something like that. And it's after the fire. Is that right? Right. This this is an interesting story. Uh, it was actually right around the time of Live Aid. Mm. In fact, the first time that Pete Townsend had heard our version was at Live Aid. Roger played it to him on a on an old Walkman. I don't know whether any of the <laughs> listeners will remember those. <laughs> of but he the, he was in he was in headphones and he played it to him and he was actually pretty much taken aback he was he loved it so mm -hmm. which we which was very good for us his demo no disrespect was mm -hmm. a really bad cassette mm, really? <laughs> with him singing along with a hurdy-gurdy it Pete almost sounded singing like singing with a hurdy-gurdy yes this is this is Pete <laughs> oh, doing it sounded like a hurdy it sounded I don't quite know how he's this cassette was such a bad quality. I couldn't really get uh, what he meant. We definitely got the lyric because the lyric was killer, mm -hmm. you know, as it would be mm -hmm. from Pete Townsend. You know, don't think he's ever written a bad song. No. But when the cassette was presented, I said, this was the 11th hour of the album as well, by the way. We were kind mm -hmm. of on tender hooks, but we knew we really needed this kind of hat tip from pete mm -hmm. which would be the cream on the cake as we yeah. say in england i don't right. know whether you say that but anyway so we finally got this cassette through and i just went you have to be kidding me mm -hmm. i said what do i do with this well i could hear there was a little kind of a melody sort of tune once or twice in the cassette and then pete's voice was so weak and and he, he obviously had done it very quickly mm -hmm. this is no disrespect we are mm -hmm. we sometimes get get not these days because right. you know the average eight-year-old tear it up on garage band <laughs> right. you know but this is much more you know and i thought well, what do i do with it well i took it away and i thought well it's got to be an anthem it's got to be anthemic it's got yeah. to be and then I picked up that big tune that I played on the piano, actually, on it, mm. and used that as a as a counter theme. I thought we would emulate the hurdy-gurdy mm -hmm. with what is called an ebo yes. on the guitars. Yeah. And I, uh, Mark, Mark Brzezicki was already playing drums on the whole record, mm. and he was working with a band, or still is working with a band called Big Country. Of course, love them. Big Country, big, yeah, Big Country were very famous for that Ebo droney mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I thought, who better than you know, call Bruce Watson, yeah, and he, we would have him come and play his Ebo on the track. Mm -hmm. Actually, we also used on that particular track, we used 
their bass player, Tony Butler. You did. Everybody um, except Stuart so, yeah. from Big Country is on this song, basically. Yeah, yes, that's all, all. Yeah, that was it. And Stuart, God bless, was still alive in those yeah, days. Yeah. So, yeah, bad one there. But, yeah. you know, sorry, don't want to go to the bizarre side. But anyway, let's keep 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 moving yeah. through. So Bruce did a great job. He kind of gave that bed. And then I had this idea of back in the day before we had Pro Tools, before we had Logic Audio, you know, all the stuff we could do now in two seconds by two buttons. Nick Lenny Smith, God bless him, who now is still a dear friend of mine, the MD for Hans Zimmer Mm. currently. So he would do all my keyboard. He had an old keyboard called an emulator, which actually could sample and what we call big word truncate things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i said to him do you have a tubular bell in there and he said yeah and i said well can you reverse it and then put it as a bed under that ebo so it mm-hmm. sounds like a bell going mm-hmm. just a continuous bell mm-hmm. and he did it he actually pulled it off so that was another wow. intrinsic sound to me that made the atmosphere of the front of the record. Also, uh, with John Siegler's bass, uh, sorry, uh, it would have been Tony's bass, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, John, I think, played over it. I don't think he's credited oh. on that. Oh, interesting. I think he should be on there because he's on the rest of the record. Yeah. But there was a line that, there was a bass line that plays that also I did a slight backwards piano behind mm. playing the same the same line to reinforce the line so that the bass took the to lead the transient if you want to get technical yeah. and then the the piano kind of gave it a shadow it was really nice kind of mysterious sort of thing because we wanted it to be a little bit tension building yeah you know? it, it totally works so yes. it was that kind of tension that we want we wanted in there anyway mark Brzezicki was the backbone of this track mm. really his drumming on it was second to none I mean he was he was 25 years old when we did oh. this record he, he still is a dear friend mm. he, he comes back and forth to Nashville now yeah. where I am so I've had him I on here by really the way He's, I love him I love that band yeah, yes. I, yeah. yeah I treasure that relationship we, we, we have a wonderful mutual admiration for each other he's a great, great guy and yeah. Probably, I would definitely give him one of the best in the world. Uh, we came up with the beat, and I said, we've got to be able to put a like a very strong, you know, for want of a better example, Springsteen beat behind mm. this. And nice. That's what he came up with. He came up with incredible original drumming, honestly, really original. Some of the patterns, you know, that Ringo used to pull out back in the day mm-hmm. that, that were just so different but so right for the tracks. Mark came up with something magical on that. Robbie McIntosh, let's go to him yeah. for a second. Yeah. Uh, of course, big ad, big admiration for dear Robbie. He's still around and has been through the Pretenders. He was playing mm-hmm. with the Pretenders at that time, I believe. Yeah, And then he went on to McCartney for 10 years and then actually was a sideman for John Mayer yeah. for many years, playing Dobro all the different things. I think John Mayer had a great, as we all do, Robbie's mm-hmm. one of the greatest guitar players to me, you know, yeah. on, on, on the planet. For that, any style, but he had a particular 
authoritative delivery that he could he could bring something to the table and he brought that kind of counter rhythm in the song that really made it kind of rock a bit yeah and then we decided to hold off until about i probably let me see i'm looking at the song i'm trying to be specific about a third of the way through the bass starts to move into a rock and roll eight which Mm -hmm. is kind of the thing everybody waits for and then honestly the the subject matter and the lyric were just genius in my book i just think you know it's one of those i believe it was one of those very special moments let me talk about some more folks on here let's let's make sure we don't leave anybody out roger did the vocal honestly in one take wow with one fix with one fix we were actually recording on 16 track two inch tape i would uh do that in those days i would uh-huh. record on 16 track two inch tape put that tape away until the mix and then bring it out what we used to call bouncing <laughs> and uh-huh. those were which actually transferring tracks from one tape to another right. so i would transfer the drum the drums to two tracks on another 24 track a slave if you like mm-hmm. and then uh, i'm not sure we were allowed to say that now but uh, <laughs> uh we would go to that and then have stereo drums to work to and then work on the overdubs analog tape would shed it was one of the most beautiful mediums ever out there it still mm-hmm. is in my book mm-hmm. but uh, it's a romantic uh, notion now people don't often use it but we were of course this was our medium to use so we, we found the best possible way around it so that was uh, one of the things that, okay. that really okay. added also to the sound uh, the only way I can explain analog tape is it's oxide and it, it it's forgiving mm-hmm. digital is un, unforgiving yeah yeah <laughs> Anal- analog that. tape forgives you it kind yeah. of moves with you okay. so it's almost human so okay. so <clears throat> very musical so it, it all kind of added to that that idea you mm-hmm. know that we had sorry the royalties as as it says on the album, went to the Band-Aid Trust. Yes, that was going to be something Pete, I wanted to ask you about. Pete Townsend donated everything he had, and, and it went to. we all decided to do that. So. That's great. And uh, it's the only song okay. I ever heard on the radio that mentions Dom DeLuise. And every time I hear that, and it's it's such what a, a great one. Yes, it's such a funny reference, but it doesn't sound funny in the song. It doesn't sound awkward. It makes sense. But it's such a no, it strange reference to throw in there, yet it works. And Matt Dillon. Oh, I forgot about Matt Dillon. Yes, the Dom DeLuise part is yeah, so much more. Yes, same wild. Same verse. That's great. And obviously Pete was Pete yeah. was watching something, something and he just right? wrote it down. I, yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah, pretty pretty genius. It pretty is pretty genius. genius. Okay. But you know, the, I I guess the key lyric in there which Roger was a little nervous about, honestly, because of the temperature at the time in the world and Africa. He's, there's, and then the, the line that says, and the sound of a distant gun mm. and the cry of a hungry child. He, he was a little nervous about it. I said, it's okay. You know, oh, it, yeah. it, it's out there. It's, what, it's what's happening yeah. in the world with this stuff. And the reason... It fitted so well at the time was was that, you know, in a way it had a reference to what was going on in Africa. It makes it sound even even more uh, heft, sounds even more important, you know. 
Okay. Track two, Don't Talk to Strangers. One thing I uh, okay. thought I had about this one is that it's uh, I feel like I hear um, a different range within Roger's voice. And I and I don't know if this sounds really naive of me to say, but Roger, his singing voice is always almost always yelling or screaming. I mean, it's like and, and that's a I mean, he's famous right. for it. You know, what I mean, that's his thing. But I feel like right. in the verses of right. this song. It's more of just a regular singing voice that you might hear if he were sitting next to you or you guys were in the same room or he's not like in full yeah. Roger Daltrey. And it's a it's a tone that I'm not used to hearing with Roger. It was a really welcome change, you know? Yeah, very astute, very astute. That one It's almost a behind blue eyes. Thing. Yeah, but, there uh, you go. Let me go to this uh, and give you some clues about this song that I don't think has been printed. Okay. Again... This was very much about the Who. It was about, you know, certain members of the Who. So the Blue Room is Olympic Studios. Oh. Olympic Studios was blue. Like a pale sort of blue on the walls. Okay. And she geniusly, uh, Julia, did that with Chris Ryder. Yeah. Uh, they wrote the lyric to this and Roger got involved a little bit some of the sort of tie-ups but most of the bulk of the lyric was definitely coming in from that angle so this song is a great story about the who again um, again they were victims of their youth you know afraid of the darkness it was all that stuff they were because you know they were leading if you like the whole fashion world even in the 60s, mm-hmm. because you may not know, or some of you, are sure, some of the historians will know the stories of the mods and the rockers in right. Brighton, and there was right. that big fight. You know, it was all, it took it to the nth degree, as they will in England. Yeah. Just a bunch of juveniles that weren't really yeah. thinking straight, but they, they took it a bit too far at times. But it, it it's saying there that it gave songs in that room in, in in the blue room that tore the world apart so it mm. did absolutely do wow. that it opened doors robbie uh had come up with that riff that great mm. little i love it and i i said hey i said let's put let's put a thank you i i said let's put a little delay on that thing and and you know make a not too much 
towards the edge, but uh-huh. getting there, you know, and yeah. it was that kind of thing. It was that, but it rhythmically kind of gave the backbone to the song in my book. Yeah. My dear friend, Mark Williamson. Now, Mark, unfortunately, has Parkinson's disease oh. now. He's still alive. Sure. He was my dear friend from back in the day. Still is. We still talk. He was a fabulous singer in yeah. his own right. Yeah, making his own records. We did a record. And this is going to date me. There we go. 89 <laughs> okay. called Bridge Too Far oh. yeah, with John Robinson. So Mark was always present on most of my recordings. Okay. He was such a great great chameleon singer no disrespect he was yeah. a great lead singer but he was also a great chameleon singer so he could blend in with pretty much anyone and we used him on on that too uh, yeah yeah and mark could rock mark could now talking about the two voices that was great very astute of you john so paul mccartney is one of those lucky people <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that can suddenly tear your head off with a lyric yes. you know with a little richard yes. theme and then so go go to let it be you know or yeah. you know eleanor rigby or and jo, uh, roger you know definitely had that he had that gentler side i know nobody really wanted to hear it because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to hear right. they wanted to hear the scream and won't, won't get fooled you know yeah. and all that but he did have that tender side and this album actually does have some of that a lot yes. of that there are other tracks we'll talk about but right um this album, i i also wanted to encourage that side out of him because it was a sort of a tender voice yeah that one so yeah. you uh, nailed it with the much that one. that's the uh that's the reference yeah you don't hear yeah. that calm yeah. just regular singing voice out of him very often you just hear the the screeching uh, which is he's the best at it i mean I'm not, that's not a bad thing it's just yeah you don't hear yeah. it very often the, I think the word I enjoy most about that that style is the vulnerability. Mm, yes, you know that vulnerable, almost touchable voice. Yes. Before they used to tune anything, we oh, weren't no. tuning anything here, by the way. Yeah. So everybody knows that there was nothing of that technology with us. We, the closest we had was a thing called an even tied harmonizer, which was one of those infernal things huh. that people used to use. But we had no way of of uh, you know everything had to be right in tune anyway yeah you know yeah. so all right gave the character to the thing it is all right we're going on i love the way that so, this album kicks uh, off all these these first three rock breaking down paradise this was written yeah. by russ ballard
You mentioned him earlier. I've had him right. on the show too. He's a legend as well. How, it right. seemed like more. So many people are willing to contribute to Roger's album. How does this happen? Well, let's let's dig back in with with dear Russ, um, sweetheart of a man, yeah. great musician, great singer in his own right. I remember the roulettes. Now, America may may have to dig a bit here. <laughs> We're really digging back to about 1962, three, four. He was the backing band for a singer that was uh, in England known as Adam Faith. Mm. Adam Adam Faith was a big pop star in the, the sort of ilk of Bobby Rydell with uh, that kind of thing. He was our own okay. sort of local local hero singer. Great records, really well delivered. Adam Faith actually went on to be a, a, a pretty successful businessman. Mm. He had a fairly good business head when it all kind of tailed off for his singing. But he was way up there. So the roulettes, um, God bless, were um, Russ, and there was a drummer in there called Bob Henrich. So Russ and Bob Henrich morphed into the 70s with Argent. Yeah. Yeah. Together, Bob was the drummer of Argent, and Russ, of course, was one of the lead singers of Argent, along with Dear, Dear Rod. You know. yeah. And of course, Russ emerged at that time as a great writer also. Um, this was what really one of the things that I wanted to contact him for. Because, and also, he knew the history like we all did. We were all fans in the 60s of The Who and coming up through, and he would know the whole brief. So he wrote the song Breaking Down Paradise. He did an incredible demo, as it would. It was a big hook, you know, thunderous hook. Yeah. And uh, honestly, this song, this song to me reflected Roger in a great way. Uh, uh, Russ would do, would do a great vocal, but Roger took... No disrespect, he took it to a different level. Yeah, it was just a, a, a hand in glove fit. We did use a little bit of a sequencer on this one, I think, and uh, just to kind of give it the backbone of the rhythm. Mark also broke out his octa bands for this one, he loved those things. What is They're that? Those kind of long, well, they are long, sort of cylindrical drums. Can I explain this? Yeah, I'm sure, they've all looked it up. Oh, on the internet. I think I know what but you're talking Phil about. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Phil Collins would play a lot of the fusion bands back in the day would would use these things, and they were very. It was very good for this track. It gave it a dis different distinction from that that point of view. You yeah, know, it really did. I've and, seen those uh, before. What Nick, are they called again? Octo drums. Octobans. It's O C T O B A N S. Octobans. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think we. Yeah. We said octobands. I'm not sure how you said that in America. Okay. But uh, anyway, so they he brought that to the table with the rhythm, and it was just so great. So it good. really kind of brought the whole rhythmic thing to a different thing. It's hard to do yeah. that. Yeah. It's hard to not just play two and four. You know. It, yeah. It's but Mark would be the genius of bringing a new thing to every every possible track. It was yeah. Amazing. I used my friend also, I'm noticing is starting to appear on the record now, who is John Payne. John was a great local singer, right, with us. 
John now has gone on to greater things with Asia the music of foreigner. Uh, didn't he take over Asia. Asia for a while? Yeah. yeah. Yes, he did. He did. He yeah. took John Witten's place when yeah. John was feeling sick. And John Payne and I are still in touch. He, he always tells me that this was his first break mm. when he sang on this record that gave him. Because I really believed in John. He was a local great singer in rock bands. And I just believed in him. I said, you need to come and sing on this with, yeah. with the guys, you know, that, that bring him in. So Russ also sang on it, played guitar yeah. on it played on his own song it's always always great yeah i, I you know I, no disrespect to russ here there's always something special to me about a writer and i'm just soapboxing a bit here but uh -huh. about a writer who sings his own songs interesting you know leonard cohen god bless and yeah. you can quote me if you like yeah. wasn't the greatest singer no but he was the greatest writer mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. and interpretations of his songs i know have been done by others but there's something heartfelt about a singer that sings their own mm -hmm. song. Anyway, that's end of, end yeah. of soapbox. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, this is a great track yeah. too. Like the it there's well, I've got one kind of clunker on here a little bit that we'll talk about in a little bit. It comes up, but so far you this album just comes out with a bang. You know, everything is rocking. Sp having said that, right. track four is when it kind of slows down a little bit. The pride you hide. Uh, which I believe was the fourth right. single off the album, is sort of the first ballad. I really love the oh's parts in this song. It's a great hook that really, yeah. you know, burrows in your mind. I didn't know who the writers were. I don't recognize the name Alan Daglish or Nikki Tesco. These were part of other groups at the time, I think, guys. I don't know. This this song came out of through through an office. Sorry, it's not wildly romantic. This one, ah. but it's um, it came out of. Through the office, and Roger really pushed to get this song, oh, he liked this and song. I really did okay. it. Just yeah, I really and I like the song. I just I I was just Roger goes to the romantic side mm. now and again, mm -hmm. but it it you can see here that this song is slightly an odd one as far as the Who goes. It might have been a personal experience for Roger. I don't know. But, you know, you're looking down the lyrics here. You know, I found some things of yours today, an old guitar to play, mm. that stuff. You know, it, yeah. it, it's definitely one of those romantic things. We brought something to it, I think. And again, the backgrounds, we're introducing one of the singers uh, that I would start to use in those days is dear Annie McCaig. 
who is oh. from Edinburgh, Scotland, right. still still up there. She was in a group back in the day called Nutshell. I oh. actually met her at Tony Visconti's studio. That oh. was uh, in in central London. You, some of your your avid listeners of producers will yeah. know Tony produced Absolutely. twenty David twenty yeah. David Bowie records, and yeah. moreover produced fan. my friend John Glasscock oh, uh, in Carmen, nice. the, okay. the best record he ever made. Yeah, so th- this one is a, is a romantic throwback somehow. I just really put it in. Roger really wanted to do it, and I felt like okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, well, it's good. It doesn't. We, I mean, we it, every we song, every album needs a ballad, a power ballad, and this one works fine. I think. I really like the ooh, yeah, the oh he, parts. You know. It, it's a great lyric. Uh, we mm-hmm. thought the lyric was really strong. Uh, very good. Yeah. Okay. So we're coming to the next one. Yeah, move better in the night. This I think is probably my second favorite right. al- song on the album. I love this one, and I, yeah. it's written by Chris Thompson, who I just spoke with recently. I think some of the other people on here are, have, are uh, a part of Knight, which was the band he was in for a little while after Manfred Manns. Tell us how these guys got involved. Right, Steve, Stevie Langer is a great singer herself and, and a great writer as well. Robbie brought this. That's what I thought. Actually, Robbie brought this song uh, because Robbie was on the record. He said, you must hear this song that Chris Thompson and I and Stevie had written together. Uh-huh. And I said, okay. And then when we heard it, it was just hand in glove. So again, it's about breaking rules. It's about life in the fast lane. You know, the whole thing that who were doing, you know, when they when they really got under their wheels. It says the dirt on my wheels. Yeah. I'm ready to turn. And this is a real just straight down the line rock and roll. Anyway, there's a there's a great. Uh, uh, a great story about this. Funny uh-huh. story about this. This gets a this gets a little bit touchy here and there, okay. but not really. I don't. I, you know, I I know John. You like some dirt. So <laughs> I'll give you a little. I'll, I'll give you a little dirt. Okay. Um, but I'm going to run down who played on it. So uh, normal uh, crew here, likely culprits. Mark on drums, Robbie on guitars, John bass. But look at this one. Mark Felton. Now, yeah. Mark Felton has a has a history. Mark was a fantastic harmonica player. He was one of those old. If some of your harmonica people know this story, that the Green Bullet Mike and the Fender Champ amplifier. Mm. He like they used to play the Chicago blues. They would play through a taxi mic, 
a literally a taxi mic that was inside a taxi. No way. A, a, a cab. You know that Here. was that was the the idea of this mic. It's a Sure 55. It's a, it's literally green and it looks like a bullet. Wow. So it's it's rec- it's recorded through that through the amp. That's how they. And you know Mick Jagger's done there. So, sure. You know because he's Muddy Waters. Of course, you know those guys would all tear it up with that. Little Walter was one of those. Some of your blues fans yeah. are out there. So Mark was really a, a key sound on this for me. Anyway, uh, and then of course we had Annie, John, and Mark mm-hmm. Williamson background. So let me tell you the story about this one. <laughs> Ironically, I was making a record in. Chicago, mm. with our friend Dennis the Young, yes, who I think the world of, yes. uh, with from Sticks. Yep. He had sought me out. He had seen that I'd done two Roger Daltrey records, and he kind of dug me out mm-hmm. in, from England and took me to Chicago. When we were there in Chicago, Chicago, I don't know whether your listeners know this, but it's a fairly big, what we call, no disrespect here, mm-hmm. a fairly big jingle town. It's a yep. commercial town for commercial music. As we were recording Dennis up there in a studio called Streeterville, no longer there, sadly, there was a, a duo in the other room that kind of camped out there that were doing all the jingles in America, everything you knew, all the Wendy's stuff, yeah. you know, the, the, the stuff, and no disrespect. They would really top of their tree. And it was funny because we were seeing them you know, passing by in the studio as we were camping out there for probably a month or so, seven weeks, actually. And they were kind of looking at me sideways. And I'm going, what's all this about? (laughs) Why are they? Anyway, we couldn't figure it out Uh because they they kind of were a little standoffish. Anyway, eventually we found out what it was. I was talking to one of the guys and he said, do you know... You have the biggest jingle in the United States at the moment. <laughs> and I went, no. Huh. And he said, I said, with what? With what? And he said, move better in the night. Really? Well, it turned out that I believe, can I say names? Michelob, sure. <laughs> the beer, uh-huh. had decided to use move better in the night. They had a campaign on the night and they did songs like night moves yeah Sega. they did don't you know what the night can do yeah which i remember mark, this william which mark that was wasn't it steve, steve Winwood? Winwood. yeah uh, and i think they did tonight tonight uh, yeah, tonight with yeah. genesis yeah and they did of course in the air tonight yeah i and, forgot you know, about so this they they chose this it's still on the internet you can find it wow but they chose this as one of their lead singles. So this is why I was getting the sideways looks. (laughs) I said, look, this is nothing. I said, this is nothing to do with me. I had no idea. It's just a track that we produced on the record, you know, and and we felt was right for for what we we were doing for Roger. And then then everything calmed down. So it was a happy happy ending. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I forgot all about that campaign, but but you're right. Yeah, yeah, I remember those now. Fairly good story. This was yeah. way back in the day. You I know? love it. So I hadn't, living in England, uh, as we were, I hadn't realized that it, this was all over America. Yeah, you know, yeah. 
Understood. Yeah, and and uh, we don't we 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 do get Michelob, I believe, in England, but uh, you know it it was. Yeah, you wouldn't have heard it. Well, now we go to the uh, bonus track, which is only, it wasn't available on the LP originally, but it's on the CD and it's on the cassette, and that's Love Me Like You Do. the one I mentioned earlier is a little bit of a clunker for me and I should qualify when I say that it doesn't mean that I don't like the song at all it means that when compared to every other song on this album it's the one I probably like the least does that make sense again this is this is Roger's sort of romantic side Uh, okay coming out and that that's pretty much all I can say that it's that kind of side that he wanted that tender side to be in the record yeah. And I felt that, you know, just just roll with it. The yeah. record company needed a B-side, what we used to call a B-side back in the day. Yeah. So this was used from that. And you, you're yeah. describing it very well. Uh, I, I kind of agree with you. Yeah. You, you've was, got to do uh, certain things. It's, it was the B-side to mm. Quicksilver Lightning, which was the theme song to the movie Quicksilver that Roger yeah. did. And we sh- we sh- yeah, we should definitely talk about that because that that is almost, that should have almost been on this yeah, I'm surprised that it did. It wasn't the next one, right? It wasn't on either yeah. one, but it, it's a we great were song. Actually, right, we were actually recording this record in the studio when I was approached by um, Giorgio Moroder oh. to to actually get to do that record. That's a good story. That one. I don't uh. know we talked about that one. No, first, tell me on the, first, on the first interview. But well, we can go into it a little bit. Again, this came through the Who office. They had said that they wanted Roger to sing the theme tune for Quicksilver, which was a Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. and a Lawrence Fishburne yep. movie set in New York about bicyclists. They were messengers. Mm-hmm. And they would actually physically be on bicycles, which probably is the best transport in New York, yeah. know, arguably. Right. But uh, anyway, so so I said, well, look, I, I've got my band right now in was set up the mics are up why don't you send me he was of course in switzerland mm-hmm. uh, Giorgio, god bless him i said why don't you send me your sequences because he was great at all that mm. you know he would all that synthesizer dance right. stuff you know it wasn't really something that i did but i said send me those and they literally sent a multi-track we put the multi-track up on our machine and the band played to it mm. And so uh, that was how that came together. And 
Giorgio actually came to England and we both sat uh, on the vocal with mm-hmm. Roger and um, that was I was very proud of that track they yeah. they they had done the saxophone in Switzerland before it got oh, to us I, I, yeah. I have to, I have to I have to give them up on that one yeah. that was a great great part as well but our, my band did an incredible job you know it was Mark yeah. it was John Siegler Robbie and all the guys, you know, okay. so they yeah. just, and that was a hand in glove fit, really, it's and very song. convenient at that time, you yeah. know, so great. I, I'm very proud of that one. Good. Let and me, we, uh, here's another quite a little bit of a tangent. Um, around the same time that you're working with Roger, he does Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me on the Lost Boys soundtrack as well. Did you have a hand in that? I can't remember if we right. talked about that before. No, no, okay. this was something that he, he would do, you know, he would, sort of butterfly a bit okay. you know around and just guest on things yeah i think he likes the idea of that and the lost boys was okay great. yeah good song i was just anyway, curious if you were involved good. okay well so now we go to yeah. what's basically side two this is track six let me down easy second single and uh this one came up before when we talked because it's written by brian adams and jim valance and it's basically their song somebody only with slightly different with different lyrics and some slight changes here and there yeah i think you're right i i I would agree with that uh great story here though Mm. i was actually when i was commissioning the songs we had had uh an interest in the who office again from Jim saying I'd love to write on this mm. and I said well I'm, I called him he was in Canada they these guys are in Vancouver mm-hmm. so I spent a little time speaking with Jim not realizing that Brian you know was was that involved in these things. Yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't realize until we we dug in anyway Jim said look Brian wants big time involved in this record he's a massive fan of Roger and he would like to actually come over, sing on it, play on it, and be in the videos. Huh. And I said, well, that's very flattering, and I, I will relay that to the Who office. And I did, and it happened. I hadn't realized at the time, you know, that they were forceful writers, because we knew the work of Brian, you know, and, and the great yeah, stuff he did in those days. But um, incredible landmarks. Anyway, when we finally got to which was the video sets, 
of Let Me Down Easy. This is a good story. Mm. <laughs> and I, I'm sure Roger won't mind me telling this story. Okay. Anyway, we got to the video set in, uh, I think it was Shepparton in England. It was a soundstage kind of place. Mm. There was a five-camera shoot. All the lights were up and everything. I was playing Hammond on it. We had actually Stuart Elliott playing in that video. It was mm. Mark's drums, but Stuart happened to be. Mark wasn't available at the time. Okay. John Siegler did play on that video. Mark Williamson was on that video. Clem Clemson uh, was on that video. We'll come to Clem in a minute. Well, okay. well, because well, he, he got involved a bit later. Clem was, of course, from Humble Pie fame and oh. then became a, a one of the top top session players in. In a, he replaced Peter Frampton in Humble Pie. I'm sure your okay. your folks will know all this. Yeah. So mm. this is a later stage, but uh, he was in that video. And then, of course, Brian. So, you know, it was a red carpet time. You know, we were bringing Brian in, and it was nice to meet him. And the very first time I'd met him, honestly, I hadn't spoken. I'd spoken to mostly Jim on the phone. But when Brian arrived at the set, we met for the first time. And they said, well, this is Alan Shacklock, you know. Mm -hmm. And he went, wait a minute. Wait, hold on a minute. <laughs> Alan Shacklock? And I... He said, the Alan Shacklock. And I oh. said, come on. I thought he was joking. <laughs> and then he said, no. He said, the Alan Shacklock of Babe Ruth. And I said, I cannot re believe you know that. And he <laughs> said, oh, I've got all of your records. Oh, well, Babe Ruth what happened to be one of, the, one of our biggest areas was Canada. Yeah. And so he had got attention to those old records and, and, and got them. And it was a very good meeting, really, because of that. You know, it yeah. was a nice kind of intro for, for, for us both. And Brian's a sweetheart. He's a yeah. lovely man. Yeah. He, he came to the table really well. And he did. And he was very, you know, just, just great with Roger. And, of course, as you say, this song is a, is a morph of that. Other yeah, I. Um, but it, it was strong. It was strong in itself. It is a. It I mean, it's undeniable. Okay, <laughs> it's an undeniable, you know, tr riff and song. I just, I wonder. I mean, we've sort of danced around this, but I'm just going to ask you point blank, Alan. I mean, we're when you're recording this song, is anyone saying, you know, this is just like somebody that Brian just had a hit with, or does, yeah, it, does anyone it, it talk about it? It wasn't. Was somebody out at that point? I don't know. I think somebody was from the year before. Maybe, you know what? Maybe okay, it so. hadn't become a hit by the time you guys were actually recording this album. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to worm out of it. No, I'm trying <laughs> This is a producer's job. Yeah. This is a producer's job to definitely, definitely get quality control and police things. Yeah. But uh, I believe. Uh, I we we just thought it was good in its own right, yeah, honestly. It and is. felt it felt a right a right fit for us, and the boys did a great job on the groove and the arrangement, as it as all I can say. But the lyric was very good, very strong, kind of yeah. gave a little tip to the Who in in certain ways. Okay, you know, but it was it was good. Well, it is a good one. Okay, so the next one is Fallen Angel. This one is also kind of more in the ballad. Oh area but it's still pretty powerful yeah
he rips it up. Yes, he does. Uh, Roger was, a, as we all were, really. Uh, Kit Hayne was one of those best-kept se- secrets that England had. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Uh, she was a... Yes, she had a band, uh, a very big, sort of slightly big hair hit <laughs> uh-huh. in the late seven late late seventies with a group called Marshall Hayne. Oh. Marshall Hayne. Okay. Okay. They were signed, uh, ironically, to Harvest Records, which was Pink Floyd's uh, and ELO's label. Okay, it, they would take a flyer now and again on certain things and this was a it was almost a one-hit wonder john to be honest they don't i don't think they matched this one song the band doesn't ring the bell but maybe the song would if i heard it i'll look it no it was the song called dancing in the city Hmm. okay also i believe she was involved in some of the earlier albums with Roger. She'd written for Kiki D. Oh, nice. Uh, I like Amy Amy Mann. I like okay. uh, Till Tuesday. This is mm-hmm. all kind of big 80s. Yeah. Even as far as Dear, Dear Heart and Cindy Lauper, I Got think it. she's been involved. So she, she was known as, as a writer. Got it. Uh, really. She did, you know, brush stroke that a little bit with that artist thing. Yeah. But it, it she... She started to become her reputation, obviously, was a writer. Roger was in Deep Smith, not romantically, mm. I don't Got know, it. but uh, he was definitely in Deep Smith with Kit's ability to write lyrics. Mm. And, you know, from this song, you can tell, you know, this is basically straight out of Revelation of the Bible. Mm. Yeah, good uh, point. If we're touching on some spirits, some spiritual yeah. stuff, okay. when the devil was uh, God, God's music leader, and it's the story of that. I, yeah. I, I should remember the scripture. I can't Revelation something. But anyway, it goes back into that. And of course, when when we got this song, I, I said we got to great classic arrangement, and we started to you know started it out fairly easy, and then Roger then then just pulls right yeah. into. Yeah. His his full on rock thing. It's vintage. And it was a, Roger on vocals. One of the great ones. One yeah. of the great ones. And he he loved Kit Haynes' music. I should know that he had done some of her songs before that. Oh. Also, there was a producer called Andy Hill, who would uh, also be involved in that kind of chain. You know, things get in chains, don't they? They get kind yeah. of in circles, and there's there's chain links as we come through. But she did write another song for Roger, and I, I don't know which one it was. She's probably you can find it in Discogs or something or one of those. Yeah, um, very very good writer, extremely good writer. Okay, she's written for Bob Seger there. So good. So where are we? Yeah, now we're on it. Don't satisfy me, which was a co-write by you. Right. And this is the bluesiest song on the yeah, album by far. Uh,
Yeah, I, I, as a producer, I don't know. There are certain things that you you either bring to an artist or not. It, it's always a, a difficult one in my book. Mm. I, I kind of come from more the humble side of this. Uh-huh. than anything because there are some producers say hey man you should do this you know you should, you should really do this song it's great for you because they want the writing credit yeah, but right. what Roger had said that he wanted a rocker mm. and I said well look I've got this idea I, ha- I said I have the title and I have the chorus but I don't have the verse lyrics so I said if, if we if we record the track and I've got the arrangement of the track so if we, we while the boys are in, we'll record the track, and you go and take it and write write the verses. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what happened. Okay. When you so challenge I had the, I Roger had to do that, can he? Because he's famously not a songwriter. He's reliant on who he's working with. No, no. He, tell him we need a verse here and there, write. can he do it? Yeah, he did it. Okay. He did it. I mean, nobody's Pete Townsend. Let's yeah, just put it true, that way. True, yeah. But he did okay. It was, it was a straight-down-the-line sort of, rock and roll lyric and he did a good job and he took the sentiment of the song mm-hmm. like the who were never satisfied really yeah you know that because that's what i was saying i was saying you, you you never really were satisfied with where you were you always felt like you had something to prove yeah. even when it when it got into just worldwide stakes you know mm-hmm. yeah so he, he he came up with this thing so okay. um that was that was that one good okay all right, so next, next Rebel, one is Rebel. Brian Adams. Yeah, another Brian Adams. This uh, was included on yeah. his next album, Into the Fire. His album before Reckless had somebody was just before this album came out, and then Into the Fire was just after. Right. So his version's on there, but this oh, is good Roger's to know. version. I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I felt this was a great song to just the tempo a little bit slower, you know, more of a rock thing, just a bit more kind of fit in that. Yeah, almost. I think from my point of view, I believe on every album. There's got to be a track that says, what were they thinking? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, most great albums have got that. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. On yeah. every track on every track with the Beatles, it's what were they thinking? Right. But on, on most of us, us mere mortals on the ground, 
you know, there's a, there's always a track where they're going, and that I think was this one for ah, this album. It was, it was almost that felt, it filled that sort of producer slot, if you like, and yeah. and of course Brian did a great job with the writing and Jim, but yeah. it does, you know, like it does go back. Old men say uh, mm -hmm. they've seen it before. Well, they drink their beer and talk about friends. You know, it's got a definitely got a who thing definitely. to it. And um, he's he so, almost does a won't get fooled again type scream in here. You know, it's yes, Roger at his screamiest my, best. Yeah, right. That was that was my fault. I just really well, got to put it somewhere. <laughs> you have and I, to. And I said, yes. this is. I said, I said, this is a good one to put it in. It is. And he said, yeah, okay. He succumbed to my request so sometimes <laughs> you request things and yeah you you never know whether they're gonna gonna do it power yeah. suggestion i guess <laughs> right but yeah good song very well up there with everything else yeah it's up keep, and it's the last keeping. one yes here we go this is the epic under the raging moon you at all in any way no. um, and i do want to talk about a couple of things please about this record but just politically a little bit from the, a producer's point of view some of the some of your listeners might be interested in this but now of course they it it doesn't really count because there, there are hardly any record companies left uh -huh. uh, but some are left of course but roger at the time was signed to two record labels he was signed to Virgin Records in England, or it was actually a, a subsidiary label of Virgin, which was called Virgin 10. Oh, okay. He was also signed to Atlantic in the United States. So this record was riding those two fences. Mm. And I had A&R speaking to me, because normally as a producer, you are really beholden to the A&R, you, you, you have to report to the A&R. Yeah. So I'm really talking with two labels. It was difficult because both of them would have different ideas 
you know, giving me the briefs that they felt I needed, yeah. you know. So I really just had to cut down the middle and go, look, this is where we're going, guys. It's going to be good. Yeah. Just give me the leeway. Give me the leeway to go. I'm sure you you will be pleased with the end result. And thank God they were, because actually the A and R in Atlantic at that time was, of course, Sir Doug Morris. You know, mm. who is pretty much the king of everything. Yeah. Uh, now I think the head of still the head of Sony. I'm, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. and been the head of Universal. So he was actually, when he first came to England, we were all a little bit intimidated because you, if you read, uh, go back and read the old books like Hitman and mm-hmm. that, if you're a fan like me. But yeah. Doug, of course, was responsible for so many massive careers. And then uh, it was time for him to come to England and the playback, the big playback, you know. So mm-hmm. they flew him over and he started to pace the floor on this almost like a pregnant father if you know what I mean huh. like, you know when, yeah. when we played him after we played him after the fire straight out of the box nice that was the first thing he heard from it you know because mm-hmm. I'm sitting there on tender hooks wondering oh okay I'm out of here I've probably lost my job on this <laughs> he was quite, he was quite silent he was oh. quite silent and just just listening intensely probably had a bit of jet lag and all that Uh but then he just sat down and he said i have to say this is the best thing i've heard him do since you know the who wow nice he sighed with relief thought okay we still have a job you know Uh (laughs) (laughs) he's a powerful man in 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 the industry still is you know and made some great decisions you know obviously an artist that atlantic could work with so uh, the Who were with Atlantic, as well, a lot of the British bands, you know, mm-hmm. Zeppelin, and you know, all the bands were were yes, yes, and all those bands. So anyway, on to the track. So here we go. So John, I gave John Parr the brief, and he was co-writing at the time quite a bit with Julia Downs, who was a very, or is, I should say, a very talented writer, particularly lyrically. She was good. Okay. We had met her, of course, on the Meatloaf record, mm-hmm. and she had written stuff from the Meatloaf record that I produced. So we were very excited about this team taking the brief and working on the idea. And I said, we really need something reverencing Keith Moon. This is what this was my mm-hmm. brief mm-hmm. brief to them. So he went, okay, got it got it gonna go away and do it so took them about two weeks i think they came back with this and of course john's demo was amazing he Mm -hmm. he's got a great voice so he sang his song undeniably forcefully and powerfully yeah not that he needed to because it was a great song anyway but again this story of this song apparently was the woodstock story of the who right at five in the morning so it pretty much runs it down in the song. It's a story. I wanted it to be very Who-esque, if you know what I mean, in, mm-hmm. in the back in the backing track. So I added a sequencer that was through a wah-wah that kind of gave rise to uh, some of the Who stuff, like the Barbara O'Reilly's, and yeah. hopefully it wasn't too cheesy, but it, it, it really... To me, it gave it that flavor and that kind of backbone of motor that kept the thing moving 
as we went through. Right. And as I said, I think this was this was actually the backward piano behind John's bass. It wasn't after the fire. Sorry, this was okay. there was a bass line that I came up with with John that he he worked we worked together on, and uh, we did the back background. The sequencing was done by dear Nick Glennie Smith, my dear friend. Mm. He did it all on an emulator. John Parr and Roger did the backgrounds. Dear Steve Rance, at this point there was a thing called the Fairlight. Yeah, it was, sure. <laughs> it was the only it was the only old machine that, that we had in the eighties that could actually literally sequence something yeah. and sample something. It was an old horse. It looked like a, an old horse, you know, <laughs> like the old Lynn drums or any of that. But we used that, and of course, then Annie, John, Payne, and Mark. Williamson did the background. So here comes the exciting bit for me. So I went to dear Mark Brzezicki and said, hey, Mark, look, this is a song about Keith Moon. I really do feel you should do a drum solo on uh, this. Uh, Would you be up for that? And he said, well, I don't I don't know. You know, Mark's always kind of that, that humble side of life. Sure. That's why I love him. So yeah. I said, no, come on. He said, well, 16 bars, maybe. I said, yeah, something, you know. Uh-huh. And he said, uh, anyway, he did his he did his solo part, and he played the whole track. So he said, hey, Martin Chambers is recording in the other studio. The Pretenders were in there. Let me introduce you to Martin. He might be mm-hmm. in and coming and playing on this, right? Yeah. So I said, really? And he said, yeah. So... No record company, no management, no label, no nothing. We literally walked across the hallway. That's great. Mark introduced me to Martin, and I said, look, we're doing this tribute to Keith. Would you? Oh, yeah, man, great. Bring your tape over. I've got my drums set up in the room. No (laughs) way. was in the other room with his full kit up. And then he, he said, he played a great solo, like Martin was a great rock drummer. Uh-huh. Both of them said, why don't you call Stuart? And I went, Stuart who? And they went, Stuart Copeland. <laughs> so I went, you have to be kidding. And and they said, no. I said, you really? Let's, let's call him. So on the old school phone with the dial, <laughs> we called dear Stuart. And Stuart said, yeah, yeah. I'm just booking a polo match with <laughs> Prince Charles. But he said... <laughs> he said, "This literally happened. This literally happened." And he said, "I've got, I've got my drum kit set up in my barn or, or wherever he was." Uh-huh. So I literally took the tapes in my car. I drove to Stuart's barn. He had a tape machine. We put the tape on, and he played a solo. That's so good. And then we came back, and Martin said, "Martin and Mark both said we should definitely call Cozy." Uh-huh. Cozy was very much involved. This is the legendary late Cozy Powell, God yeah, bless, yeah. who was probably best known in maybe Black Sabbath. Probably, yeah. Maybe Jeff Beck, the Jeff Beck, the Orange album, uh-huh. that I call the Orange album that, that they did back in the day um, and other things. But Cozy was an incredible drummer. Stuart, of course, just played his played his thing. You yeah. know, he, we, mm-hmm. he played that little drum kit and he played like he does in the police. You sure. Know? So, Cozy froze. Oh. Really? He froze. He came in, he came in and he said, well, what shall I do? 
And I said, play a drum solo, please, 16 bars, yeah. being the producer. So he said, I don't know what to play. Huh. And I said, well, look, I, I, and as a producer, you've got you've to step up here and do, say the right language. So I said, look, if Keith Moon was coming in to watch you right now, what would you play? That was my literal words wow. to him. And then he just played the most blinding, fast really? drum solo I've ever seen. Unbelievably exciting. Everybody was just blown away. Probably did it in one or two takes. Wow. And, ca and came in and he went, is that okay? I said, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> It'll do. <laughs> so that was, that was legend. Of course, it, the word started to get out in London that we were doing this Keith Moon tribute. Yeah. So, of course, we had to invite dear Zach. The yes. Zach Starkey was Ringo's son, of course, mm -hmm. who is a dear friend now. He was 20 years old, barely at the time when he mm -hmm. played on this record. He was an extraordinary talent. Keith Moon had given him his very first bass drum pedal. Oh, wow. wow. And ironically now, Zach now has the chair for the Who. Yeah. You know, and has yeah. done for many years. Wow. He's one of the only real ones that can fill that chair. There aren't sure. many, many people who can really pull that off, but yeah. he, he does such a great job. Then, of course, we, we, we don't want to miss out dear Roger Taylor. Let's go to Roger. He was the next one coming in. Roger, of course, is the queen drummer. Yeah. And I spoke to him on the phone. He was very enthusiastic about coming in, and he showed up in his, his brown Bentley. <laughs> of course. He got his, his, uh, his uh, of course, you know, yeah. uh, came to Rack and had his, his drum guy set up and played a fabulous solo in, in, uh, as he only could, you know. Wow. And, and was such a great spirit about yeah. it. He really had a great spirit. They all did. Yeah. They all had a great, because it was a tribute to one of their heroes. You know, Keith was a hero. Sure. A legendary. Then, of course, my dear friend Carl Palmer yeah. from, you may remember, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Even before that, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Yes. Yeah. And even before that, Chris Farlow's Thunderbirds, Ooh. where we actually met. Okay. That's when I met Carl for the first time. He was playing with the backing band with the, the soul singer in England, Chris Farlow. He had had a number one song. Sorry if I'm going over. No, covered ground from the last one. I may have done. But he had a, a number one song with uh, a Keith Richard and Mick Jagger song called Out of Time. Hmm. The Rolling Stones actually recorded that song. Uh, I wasn't on it, on that at this point. I wasn't in the band. Yeah. It was actually the legendary Albert Lee, oh. who was the guitar player of the band. And there's a great story here, quick story of that. Um, I, my, one of my dear friends in England now passed on, God bless, is Jimmy McCulloch, who played with Wings. Oh, okay. He's probably, the, and, and even maybe more significant in England, Thunderclap Newman before sure. that. Sure, I've heard of that. But... Um, yeah, when this part, when the guitar playing position came over for the, uh, open for the Thunderbirds, of course it was big shoes to fill. But after I got recommended from a friend who said you should go for this, I know how much you love Albert Lee and love yeah. his band, and 
blah, blah. And I said, well, look, I'm 17. I'm going to music college. I said, I, <laughs> I can't stay in the group anyway right now. Right. They said, well, just go down anyway. We've recommended you. Next call I got was from my dear friend Jim uh, McCulloch, and he said, are you going to the Farlow audition? I said, yeah. He said, can I come with you? And I said, yeah, Jim, <laughs> sure, because I said, you should probably get this. I knew he would. He was a fabulous guitar player. Mm -hmm. At this point, he was 16, I think. Gosh. So we got to the place, and there were about 75 guys sitting around in the back of this pub in Islington, London, Mm -hmm. we got there at 10 in the morning my father drove of course we couldn't drive at 17 in England mm -hmm. you couldn't you can't drive until you're 18 in England you can't get a license Americans would be hor horrified no kidding <laughs> they, they drive they drive at 16 in. Yeah. but uh, anyway so got down there and of course it was a bit daunting there's all these guys sitting around so my dad said oh let's just go off and get some lunch or something uh -huh. so we came back about 5 o'clock uh, and it turned out that I uh, Jim played second to last I played last and ironically between about 75 people it was between Jim and I who got no it way. so I had a powwow with Chris Barlow I said look honestly I can only be with you for a year I said I'm committed to go to the Royal Academy of Music I've done so much to get into this thing because uh -huh. at that time I was studying classical music classical guitar all that stuff composition arranging all that stuff so he said, okay, so they went and had a powwow, and they said, well, you're closer to Albert, so we're going to take you. Mm. So I went into it. Jim said, that's okay, I've got this band called Thunderclap. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, it was all around that, that late, yeah. that 68, 69 era. Anyway, uh, Jim went on to greater things, God bless him. And, uh, of course, he's the guitar player you hear on all that McCartney stuff wow. in Wings. Yeah. So coming on, sorry, rock and roll stories. Let's try to get back These on are the track. Best. Where were we? So, yeah, so Carl Palmer was it part of that band. He left about six months of me in, I was six months in, and gave the job to John Bonham, mm. interestingly. Oh. So I got to play with John Bonham for about six months, which no was way. a blessing to me. Yeah, yeah. Just a wonderful, amazing, uh, anyway, no, I'll know the story. But Carl, I invited, I called the office of Emerson Lake Palmer and said, would Carl like to come down? And of course, it was a great reunion, yeah. and he played on the record on Underage Moon. And pretty much, we kind of had to finish out. We could uh -huh. have probably got everybody in London. Right. I mean, Pete Thomas wanted to play on it from wow. Elvis Costello. Yeah. Phil Collins probably would have played if I'm he hadn't sure been he in have. LA. Yeah. You know that they, they all love Keith. You know, so yeah. it was a kind of a. A great spirit and I don't if you read the album cover here it's crazy the record companies involved with all the people that are on phonogram uh -huh. Geffen Atlantic polygram you know they all had to get permission for their performances right. and we just did that after the fact honestly wow. we did that after the fact yeah. what so, was it how long did it take um, from beginning to end from when you bring in Mark to do the original to when okay, it becomes this idea and, and word gets out Great question. Probably across about a couple of months, really. Okay. Okay. Trying to, well, between about a month to six weeks. But, you know, once we got on a roll with it and yeah. realized what a, mon what a monster it could be. Now, sorry, coming off the record, John, just a little bit, I've got a good story here that, yeah. that actually happened last, even maybe last year or the year before. 
So Mark Brzezicki is dear friends with Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters. Yeah. So uh, to do with this song, Taylor had become aware uh, this late. I don't know how it happened this late, but I think that a light bulb came on with Taylor with Under a Raging Moon and called Mark in England as he was driving. Uh Taylor literally said, where are you? And he said, I'm driving right now. So, uh-huh. so Taylor said, get into, get into a studio right now. He said, I've got something that I can send you on the internet to play on. Wow. So uh, it turns out that they'd done a remake. Now, we might have to dig a little bit here, John, on the internet. I think there was a metal band called Birds of Satan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me. Yeah, Don't side project. Me. And apparently, uh, I couldn't find it today. I, I dug, I went down the rabbit hole on the internet i could not for you may be able to find it if you can then god bless you okay um let's uh but i they did a remake of it with dave Grohl, with taylor with the dude from rage yeah. rage against the machine <laughs> right. i think these he almost did a modern day version i wish we i wish i could find wow. it i cannot find it. it was one of those obscure but he got very excited about i think a light bulb came on him realizing that one of his favorite records Mark had played on. That's wild. And Taylor said to Mark, get into a studio right now. I want you to do a drum set. So yeah. Mark did actually play on that. Wow. That, that, that piece. That's I great. cannot find it. Okay. Uh, but it I, exists somewhere. But Mark told me it was some It was some metal offshoot. We might want to do okay. a, a little bit of an, an archaeological dig. Or I'll look for it. And see. Okay. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah, because it might be an interesting, it's an interesting thing of late because it's yeah. a cover of it, you know, yeah. it's a crazy cover. Uh, let's just go to a few other things. Yeah, please. Uh, Any I'm other lingering questions? Go for uh, it. If we've, got, if we've got time. I did record all the, the, all the drummers, of course, as an overdub, and I literally put them question answer. I put one from about 12 o'clock to 7 o'clock in panning terms on the record and then 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock, just in technical terms, if people want to know that. Just so it gave the distinction between each drummer, like passing the torch on each one. Uh, That was pretty exciting, and we kind of came up with that in the mix. The team that recorded this, one of the best teams I could ever wish for, Will Godsling, great engineer, assisted by Dana Gorbin and Chris Dickey at REC. And then it was mixed by the Mark Wallace and me at Odyssey Studios, mm. assisted by Rob Roger Dobson. And of course, the legendary Bob Ludwig, who would be the mastering engineer, really yeah. the king of America, probably. Yeah. He's done so many Bruce Springsteen records, so many Brian Adams records, of course. Uh, and uh, some of your uh, listeners might know sure. even the work of Bob Clear Mountain. Oh, of course. He's a legend. Pretty much a household. Yeah household name now and that might be interesting to people and of course we pay you know homage and reverence to those guys i just wanted to add that in okay i also want to add the, the actual fabulous support that robert rosenberg and bill kirbishley mm-hmm. the managers of the who gave me on that record the encouragement was just incredible nice. behind it they were just behind the scenes being my champions all the way you, you really need that as a producer. Yeah. You need yeah. you need your believers behind you, you know, and these right. were believers. 
uh, and it, and we did we did well with it. it. I believe it did a gold record here in America, and it did a gold record in Canada. And uh, you know, not that that not that that is any credible criteria well, for creativity, because there are people who are making great records in their bedroom, and they never get out of it. But true. you know, this is something that, of course, we did, and I'm I'm very proud of. Good, I love it. I, and I love the follow-up, too. I can't wait to see the movie. I, I like them both. They're probably Good. four, Thank four you. and a half stars out of five for me. I love both those albums. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah. The, the other one was a kind of a lead-on. I, I was very proud of it. It was probably all my fault, that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be a second uh, conversation I, I, someday. I, I, don't, I, I really don't mind. It was a, it was a slight mishmash. The second one, huh. not that we we were concentrating on under Raging Moon, but you know the the second one was a slight mishmash, but it it was still relevant in its own right. It got some great reviews. Yeah. And honestly, you know, Rogers came up with the title because he's he felt all the, all the arrangements that I it's my fault. It, it's it's definitely everything on there. <laughs> but he said on every song, this should be in a movie. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> This should be in a movie. This should be in a And I, I said, well, you know, he said, I want to call it. Can't wait to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. That was, that was the story. That was yeah. the story of that one. So anyway, so. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Thank you, I, Alan. I cannot, uh, yeah. Well, listen, it's been great again, John. I always appreciate your calls and your thank podcast. You. All right. There you have it. Alan Shacklock. So much fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I hope you check out Under a Raging Moon. If you don't have that album or don't know it or haven't given it enough time, now there is no reason not to because that thing is great. So I hope you enjoyed that. We have, hopefully, if everything goes well and Yan and I's schedules allow it, next week we should have another deep dive. It's another one I've been hanging on to for a little while with a great AOR rock band that are still out there, but this one's from the 80s as well. So I think you're going to want to come back and check that out. Huge thanks to Yan the Man Makevich for doing everything. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in this. We still have a lot of bonus episodes coming out over the next, I don't know how long. I don't know how long. As long as we keep having them. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.